Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. Reduced waste and increased profits. Can they go hand in hand? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. want to understand the concept of a circular economy, the best examples can be found in nature. Imagine if everything we made was functionally indistinguishable from nature, right? That's the goal because when you walk into a forest, that whole forest is working toward a single common good, which is the protection of the forest. That's its survival strategy. Beth Ratner is executive director of the Biomimicry Institute. She explains that nature has already come up with the most efficient system for optimizing resources. All we have to do is follow her lead. In a so-called circular economy, corporations strive to eliminate waste in manufacturing by reducing products to their simplest, purest form and by designing them to be reused rather than thrown away. Good for the climate, good for the planet, but is it good for the economy? Or could compelling companies to alter their practices threaten the societal benefits they do provide? Can we ask our economic system to do that, to continue doing that, to not stop improving quality of life around the world, while it also shifts in such a way that it solves our environmental challenges? John Lanier is director of the Ray C. Anderson Foundation, named for his grandfather, a captain of industry who became a pioneer in corporate environmental sustainability. My other guests today are Beth Ratner of Biomimicry and Peter Templeton, president and CEO of Cradle to Cradle Products Innovation Institute. Lanier starts off by telling us his grandfather's story. Ray Anderson, for most of his uh, professional life, up to his 60th year on planet Earth, was your typical businessman, just trying to make a high-quality product and make a buck. And he did that very well, growing Interface into the world's largest carpet tile manufacturing company, doing about a billion dollars a year in sales in 1994. But that was the year when uh, people began asking Interface a question. One of those people is in the room here today, John Picard. What is Interface doing for the environment? That question then made Ray open to reading a book. And the book was The Ecology of Commerce, written by Paul Hawken, that charged business and industry as the sector responsible for the greatest amount of environmental degradation. 
but the only sector large enough, well enough organized and capitalized to fundamentally solve the environmental challenges that we have. Reading that book was an emotional experience for Ray. That was what he called his spear in the chest moment uh, when he realized he was this plunderer of the earth. And from that day forward, he was committed to making his business interface a publicly traded industrial manufacturer as environmentally sustainable as possible so that he wouldn't have to be that plunderer, that legal thief that he referred to himself as. And something very early on, and, and he wrote the book, the, you know, the Mid-Course Correction, after that spear in the chest moment, and he wrote early in the, that book about crying openly when he learned about clearing of the Amazon to raise soybeans to feed to cows in Germany to create butter and cheese that would then pile up there in Germany while people in Rio, in the, in the, in the favelas of, of Rio, were starving next to where those soybeans were grown. But so how, not many CEOs talk about crying in the first chapter of their business book. But he did. He was, he was a remarkable individual. He could talk about the, the bottom line and the price-to-earnings ratio of the company and everything that Wall Street wanted to hear. But when it came down to it, he was motivated in this quest uh, up Mount Sustainability with the people of Interface out of a deep sense of love. And that love was for the, the people of Interface. That love was for all of the people he spoke to in the hundreds of speeches he would give a year in the mid-2000s. And importantly, that love was for the generations of people who have yet to walk planet Earth because he understood what was at stake for real people when it comes to environmental work it was easy for him to talk about what he found just fundamentally tragic and that moved him to such sorrow. One day, senior executives of a major food company visited Interface to learn about their sustainability practices. Here's Ray Anderson retelling an encounter with one member of the visiting team. And she was head of global engineering. This woman did not want to be that. She did not understand why. They would come to a carpet mill in Georgia, of all places, of all things, to learn about sustainability. What could they possibly learn from us? She's obstructive and challenging everything. And, and then the mid-morning mid break comes, and to get to the ladies' room, she has to actually go through the factory on her way to the ladies' room or back. I don't know who it She encounters James Wisner fork truck driver on the factory floor with this big roll of carpet on this fork truck. And she stops him and she says, what do you do here? Sort of in that tone of voice. And James, bless his heart, said, ma'am, I come to work every day to help save the earth. And she was just stunned by that. So she started drawing him out. You know, what do you mean? Da, 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 da. And finally, after a couple of minutes of it, he says, ma'am, I don't want to be rude. But if I don't get this roll of carpet to that machine in the next minute, our waste and emissions are going out of control. I've got to go. She came back to that meeting, a visibly different person. She sat there very quietly, in total contrast, the way she had been before. And then after a while, she started challenging her people. Why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we doing that? And then she told the story of her encounter on the factory floor. And she said, I've never seen anything like it. To demonstrate the alignment in a company from the very top of an organization clear to the factory floor. She says, there's only one word I can think of that describes it. And it is love. Love on the factory floor. <laughs> Thank you.
That's uh, Interface founder and former CEO, Ray Anderson, uh, in a natural step online video. Beth Ratner, just your reaction seeing and hearing that. Ah, oh, that's so beautiful. I, you know, before I was Biomimicry Institute executive director, I was a management consultant, sustainability management consultant, and that is the dream story right there. That's what you want. When you work with the C-suite and you come in with a strategy plan, you, all you hope for is that it can trickle down at that kind of a level. So, I, and it's true, that's the most infusive way that you're ever going to keep your company going because management changes. Peter Templeton, tell us, you know, uh, we hear a circular economy. You know, wh what is that? Some people maybe have trouble defining it. Help us understand sure, what is sure. the circular economy? Well, the circular economy challenges us to um, look beyond the traditional take-make-waste uh, approach of the linear economy as it exists today to overcome some of the challenges that Ray has talked about um, facing us as a society um, by looking at where the opportunities exist for us to recover those materials, to retain their value and repurpose and to regenerate them into new products that can continue in perpetual cycles of use. So we're looking to upcycle to find greater value in these products and materials through the, each use. Uh, Beth Ratner, you know, we, we, a lot of people are probably thinking about recycling, you know, okay, but there's a you know, bit of a recycling problem right now. Now that China has stopped uh, accepting, China doesn't want to be the dumping ground. They want to be, first they've been the factory floor. They want to kind of move up the value chain. So what is that doing to recycling? Because it's kind of got a black eye these days. It's a really important question. And uh, I'm going to pivot a little bit on it only because there's... Fun. So before I was biomimicry, after the management consulting and before biomimicry, I was with Cradle to Cradle for a number of years. And there's this fundamental recognition that we are making things out of the wrong other things. Mm -hmm. If you look at how nature makes everything, us included, it's mostly carbon, it's hydrogen, it's oxygen, it's nitrogen. That's the most abundant set of, you know, of elements that exist. At the very, very bottom of that would be the trace elements, the, the aluminums, right? And so we can talk really, frankly, proudly about our aluminum recycling, but the truth is we should be looking at the more abundant set of elements. And that is when we, when we start talking about pulling carbon out of the air, taking it from source emitters, um, pulling methane off of farms, and creating new kinds of stuff, new kinds of plastic, the way that New Light Technologies is doing with air carbon or... Blue Planet is doing with concrete. That's the recycling story we should be telling. So we should start, so back up and start using, what are we making stuff out of? What are we making mm -hmm. stuff Make out of? Make it out of the abundant things, not the scarce things. That's right. And that would sound like that would be cheaper if you're using something that's abundant rather than scarce, right? It solves a couple problems, yeah. It solves a couple problems. It, yeah, go ahead, John. John Lanier. I, I want to highlight something about the concept of recycling. It is considered this remarkable green practice, and it is. We should celebrate how far we've come in that space and, and mourn the fact that we've lost the ability to recycle plastics in China. But when you think about the circular economy, recycling is not the answer, or no. the solution to advancing the circular economy. It's an answer, but actually one of the weakest ones. And I would point to the work of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, some of their thought leadership in this space, and the graphic that they use to depict all of the ways in which a circular economy would work, they show multiple loops. They're not the only ones who have shown this. Uh, Ray wrote his book originally and had similar graphics. But the number of loops are important because the 
tighter ones, things like reusing an item. That's a circular economy practice that keeps things at the highest yes. value. Exactly. The cycle's actually at the about. end. Reduce, it's reuse, the recycle. the last one. Yeah, it's, right. the, it's what we should do as a last result before we throw something in a landfill. So we have to be championing the more impactful circular economy solutions. And so, Peter Templeton, what are companies doing to sort of step up and, and use m better materials uh, f from the beginning that maybe don't need to be recycled? Or yes. yeah, So take us back further upstream. Well, and I want to add to this thread here and say that the starting point for us is always going to be safe materials. We want to be looking at safe and circular. So we are looking at the material health of those components to make sure that when we're perpetuating those materials, not only are they good for the health of the people and our planet, um, but they also have the maximum options for use um, in the future because we know that they're not going to cause unintended harm or consequences. So that's a starting point for us. And what is really beautiful is seeing so many you know, organizations that are rising to that occasion, seeing the opportunity that exists around this when they do take those steps to be able to continue to create value from their own products by reclaiming those products through cycles of use. And there are many different examples of that. Um, we see in products as services these days when we look at just challenging our concepts of how things are delivered, like lighting, with Philips Lighting Signify, now moving into a model where they're being able to provide lighting as a service to organizations so that they take on the responsibility for those materials through their life cycle. They maintain those light bulbs, those fixtures, and maintain a cycle through which they can reuse those and repurpose them beyond their immediate use. But the client benefits from that, from lower upfront costs, and of course, having the continued use of light throughout the, for its purpose. So lighting as a service, you don't buy your bulbs, you rent them, someone comes to fix them, they take them back. I think Interface tried that with carpet early on, didn't work so they were ahead of the game. They were, it, they called it the evergreen lease and that was the hope. Could Interface always own the carpet that they make and just lease it to people, put it in their facilities and maintain it, clean it, take it back at the end of its useful life and, and repurpose it then, recycle it into new carpet, keeping it in a closed loop manufacturing system. Uh, there are challenges candidly, and Interface isn't able to utilize the Evergreen lease, at, at least not now. I think they'd jump at the chance to start it back up. But some of those challenges are, how do you do the accounting for something like this? What are the depreciation schedules on a leased product compared to an owned product? And will the customer be willing to acquire the carpet from their operating budget for something that's leased when they've been used to using their capital budget to buy something and acquire it. If they're not willing to make that shift, then they're not even going to be open to it. Created challenges that weren't all able to be solved. It just shows we have more work to do. Peter Templeton. Yeah, just to add on that, that while you know, that particular approach didn't, wasn't successful in its initial run, the carpet industry as a whole has stepped up and taken notice. And I think that that's what's important is that we are seeing these leadership moves are inspiring others to look at where the solutions exist. And so the carpet industry has actually come together in many ways to look at how they can reclaim those products and continue to use those materials to create new carpet fiber and new carpet backing and other materials collectively through reclaiming uh, those materials across the board and working together in a way that's actually, I think, inspiring from any other sectors. So let's get real specific about materials. Beth Ratner, you know, walk us through a potato chip bag and all the materials used in there. Well, I have to credit Janine Benyus. Janine has this beautiful quote, which is, imagine if everything we made was functionally indistinguishable from nature, right? That's the goal, because when you walk into a forest, 
that whole forest is working toward a single common good, which is the protection of the forest. That's its survival strategy. It's not going to take you out in the hopes that I'm going to win only to find out that I'm going to need you later, mm -hmm. right? And so the same is true for the potato chip bag. We have, we've got to this place where we use a lot of different chemistry, all because we want to sell this particular bag of potato chips for this single use, and it's going to have one layer for protecting the oils, another for keeping air out, another one for the packaging, you know, the bright color so you pick it off the shelf to begin with. But that's not how nature designs. It uses a very small, limited palette, but it uses structure to create very different functions. So once you have these different structures in place, now all of a sudden you can achieve amazing new capabilities. You can have bumps that shed water. You can have ridges that actually channel specific you know, bacteria or repel that bacteria. We can do things with structural color. We don't have to use pigments and dyes. We don't have to make our rivers the colors that they are in Asia by dumping 450,000 gallons of wastewater in there every day because we want to look, look good. It's all about rethinking that palette of materials and structure. What's structural color? What is structural color? By the way, we're going to get out of my depths. Uh, I was a lawyer and not a biologist. <laughs> <laughs> so the idea. You need to claim that up front. Not a chemist either. I got a, uh, structural color, though, is fascinating. It's this idea that so prismatic color is hitting every surface all the time, and we, our eyes pick that up. It is canceling out every other color of the spectrum, let's say, except for blue. Right? So now I'm wearing blue, and the great thing about a structurally colored design Fabric, um, Tejin, back 20 years ago, a company out of Japan, they created the first structural color fabric. It was a little shiny, though, and, you know, disco didn't take off the way it was supposed to. So, <laughs> unfortunately, people stopped buying that. But there's a new group now that is looking to the blue tarantula for a very even blue color. Now, all of a sudden, we could have blue jeans that don't, right, toxify the water supply. When water becomes what oil is, we're going to wish we made our clothes really differently. Beth Ratner, we've heard a lot recently about you know, the extinction crisis and the number of species going extinct. So what, what's at risk there for there's some species out there that that's perhaps is going to go extinct that might be the next that we could learn something from, not to mention the fact that the interdependence of all biodiversity. But tell us about yeah. what's what, you know, your view on that extinction crisis, because it's getting a lot of attention right now. Uh, it's so devastating. There's so many reasons to have your heart broken over this topic. And but I think from the egotistical, we're capitalist, we want to make more stuff perspective, we should be actually downright scared. There is a there is a little organism called the springtail. It is probably not in danger of currently going extinct, but if you saw it, you would absolutely want to extinguish it. And you would, it's, it's a little blue organism. It's often found in marine environments. And when you type in springtail into Google, you will see exterminator options coming up. This little guy holds the key to about a $23 billion market in fashion, about a $54 billion market in auto, and probably a $110 billion market in semiconductors because it knows how to repel oils and water and everything else. It's very uncommon to be able to find oleophobic surfaces in nature, but it has this very specific sort of mushroom-headed structure. And so when the, when the oil or the water, it doesn't actually, it's got tiny hairs in addition, but it also, because of that, that uh, mushroom structure, it's not going to wet the core surface. So if you can have, if you're thinking about going to a concert 
and everyone's got their hands up in the air and they're tossing that, that balloon around or the, the beach ball around, it's the same idea. That molecule of oil, that molecule of water, isn't wetting the surface. Now all of a sudden you have a massive water and oil repellent solution. So before we go extinguishing things, before we go calling the exterminator, or worse, before our climate takes out some of our best teachers, uh, we should be thinking ahead. There's also another example uh, uh, that you tell, talk about, Beth, which is there's a professor at Stanford that's shaping wind farms uh, using yeah. lessons from fish, a good example of biomimicry. Tell Vort- yeah, vortices. We, Project Drawdown, which is a phenomenal resource, talks about moving wind from 4% to 22% by 2050, right? It's going to cost about $1.2 trillion to do that. That's a lot of capital, but what if we could actually do this in a biomimetic way? So the way that schools of fish work, the very first fish is out there and he's swimming, his little tail's going, and then the guy behind him doesn't have to swim quite so hard. So that vortices that are cast means that you have a much higher rate of efficiency of energy. So John DeBerry out of Stanford took his vertical wind turbines and grouped them like the school of fish. He was able to get 5 to 10x the output of energy just because when that first wind turbine started to turn, so did the guy behind it. So we can spend $1.2 trillion, and we should, on new wind farms, but we could maybe spend less, have fewer of them, which has, of course, a land impact anyway, all because we're looking to biomimetic models. Um, Peter, let's talk about some of the, the, the big drivers behind this. Walmart's done a lot on packaging. Uh, are they still doing that? You know, they can do a lot of things at scale. A lot of Walmart cracks the whip. Companies in the supply chain have to fall in line. Is that still a big driver, or have they kind of plateaued out all of the savings on, on packaging and other things they can get? No, I don't think we're anywhere near plateauing on the, on the, the savings that's possible, and certainly the, the need for it. And I think this is cutting across... Again, retailers and entire consumer markets at this point are looking where those opportunities exist, both in terms of opportunities to optimize the products to consumers, as well as the packaging associated with them, and then, of course, the larger systems that deliver them. We're looking at the suppliers themselves, distribution, and the opportunities to reclaim some of those materials. And again, this is another area where we're seeing a lot of innovators that are stepping forward to be able to present different cases of their own success. We have you know, folks, obviously, that you've talked to before, like the Method, um, where they've brought together consumer products for their personal care items, um, where they've looked at opportunities for them to reclaim plastics from beaches in Hawaii, bring them into their process for delivering better packaging for their products, which are also healthier and and, uh, safer products as well. But we see that also being followed by other groups like L'Oreal and more mainstream um, groups that we're really excited to see them looking not only at how their products that have earned cradle-to-cradle certification are delivered, but also the packaging behind them. And they're now engaging in broader initiatives around the packaging for those materials with Nestle Water, with Pepsi-Cola, and others to look at how they actually reclaim those materials and make better packaging for their collective set of product, um, consumer products that they deliver. Beth Ratner, wh- where's that going in terms of plastic bottles? If they're not going to be upcycled, they're not going to be made into clothing. We, you know, we're, we're a lot of tension these days. Plastics in the ocean. We're just drowning in plastic bottles. We are drowning in plastic bottles, um, and w- more plastic than fish. Right by 2050 is the current number that's being that's being talked about. We all, I have so many different ways I want to answer that question, and I'm not sure which way to go. So part of me wants to say, the, the thing about how nature operates is, number one, is all spent on avoidance. We, sh- we shouldn't have gotten ourselves into the problem to begin with, and like the structural color example is a really good way. Well, let's not think about how we're going to clean up the rivers. Let's talk about how we're not going to keep polluting the rivers to begin with. 
then you've got to optimize the stuff you do have, the the water that you have, the the energy that you have, and then and then there's the sequestration and the repair. So you're asking me a repair question. And really what we have to do is we have to actually emulate the different processes for how nature collects nutrients of all kind. So we have to think about this as we're all in this together. We can't employer responsibility for pollutants would be a phenomenal thing, but right now we're all experiencing the impacts of it anyway. So why don't we design solutions where we can all help the problem? And so I feel like that's the biggest answer for biomimicry out of the question of the way that you're asking for me is, how are we all going to play a role in this cooperation? We all contributed to it. So what's the cooperation model that we should be following? Yeah, well, take your cup to Starbucks or take your walk around with your, your water bottle. But, but you know, class, plastics get bashed a lot. But Beth Ratner, don't they also have some, some positive attributes in terms of you know, how the molecules stay together over, over cycles? That, well, I can tell you the, the exciting thing for me about plastics is I'm going to go back to air carbon for a second, that new light. So this idea that we can actually be taking carbon and using a biocatalyst, right? So you're taking, you're taking things that was about to become greenhouse gases and we're capturing it into a reactor. Then we're using a biocatalyst. We, they, I'm not doing any of it. <laughs> they use a biocatalyst and they separate out the carbon and then they repolymerize it. Now you've got a thermoplastic that is, that is going to be biodegradable. That is the future of plastic that we should be talking about. We should spend all of our time thinking about how carbon can be reused as a building block for our staff. And John Linear, I think uh, uh, Interface may have a what, carbon negative carpet. You know, so the idea of carbon right now is kind of the, this waste product that's, that's put out there for no charge. So you know, talk about rethinking carbon as, a, as an input that's actually valued in industrial production. Sure, yeah. In- Interface, and this was true to Ray Anderson's original vision, never just wanted to do no harm, which is perhaps the best definition of sustainable that you can have. They always envisioned more becoming a regenerative enterprise. What would it look like for a company just because it operated, just because it did what it did? What if that made the world more just, more environmentally safe? Could Interface help reverse global warming through its operations? Well, yes, they can transform their enterprise to do that. And perhaps one of the most important ways that they can do so is to look at what they produce and ask the question, can we sequester carbon in what we make? Can enough bio-based material be added to interface carpets where there's no loss on performance, but the carpet actually has a negative carbon footprint? And the R&D team came back and said, yeah, we got your answer. The company is now working to commercialize that, scale it, and uh, they've already made a commitment that all products sold today around the world has uh, no carbon footprint because of offsets. And you also think that this is a symbol of how capitalism needs to be kind of evolve and change where shareholders value this kind of thing because right now carbon is, is emitted for free. The, the air is a free sewer, uh, John. So how does you know, your vision for capitalism being revised, reformed so that it is more sustainable? Evolved. I would say it needs to evolve. Can we ask our global economic system to do multiple things at once. The, the very valid defense of our current economic system is that it has created more human well-being than any economic system that has been tried since the dawn of humanity. And that's true. It has. 
Can we ask our economic system to do that, to continue doing that, to not stop improving quality of life around the world, while it also shifts in such a way that it solves our environmental challenges? That's what we should be asking capitalism, neoliberal economics to evolve into. And one of the most important ways that that can happen is if individual actors within the system look for the opportunity to have a strong triple bottom line impact. I don't think there are any two uh, issues that can be opportunities bigger than resource scarcity, and the circular economy is the answer there, and global warming, climate change. Those are the two big issues that are going to define what happens to our economic system when you look out over the next 80 years, when you look at the rest of the 21st century. Can we respond to these challenges and turn them into opportunities? Companies like Interface, and there are others, are working to do that. Talking about the circular economy at Climate One with John Lanier, Beth Ratner, and Peter Templeton. Beth Ratner, you talk in one of your videos about humility and how you know, confronting nature requires some humility. So tell us what you mean by that. You know, look at nature, how it requires us to be humble. There is so much chemistry that happens in nature. There is so much intense you know, sophisticated design that, again, back to that springtail that you would want to squish or the scarab beetle, which is, have you ever seen the ones that are silver or gold or brightly colored green, almost metallic looking? You know, that's, that's five microns thick, right? It's super, super thin. And again, the, the average person, even like my, my adorable nieces are scared of bugs. They're scared of spiders. But we've been able to turn that around for them because we talk about all that they can accomplish, the, the tinsel strength of the, of the spider web itself. Like I said, the vibrant colors that are produced on the beetle from those, those tiny, tiny layers of chitin. By the way, five microns is like one-tenth of your human hair. We're talking about a very thin layer that's able to just generate immensely gorgeous colors. How can you not be humbled by that? How can you not look at how nature makes something so beautiful and so small and then what we do when we're trying to make color ourselves or structures ourselves. Peter Templeton, what's the world look like of cradle to cradle? What's manufacturing consumption look like? And should we really address the underlying driver of, of consumption itself rather than trying to just make better products? Absolutely. It's, it's, it's both part of the equation. I mean, in our, in our philosophy of cradle to cradle and circular economy, we're looking to make sure that we're taking a very pragmatic view. We are working towards, you know, or moving towards a planet of 10 billion people plus. Um, and we have to look at what is going to be required to support and sustain quality of life when, you know, within the next uh, 10 years or so, our, our middle class is now going to double in size to over 5 billion people. Um, so we want to make sure that we're not looking at this from a perspective of scarcity. We're looking at a perspective of abundance um, to the points that have been discussed here before. There's the opportunity for us to do more good, not just less bad. And so if we do embrace these concepts, which each of us have been talking about, taking them and showing that they are real, these are innovations that can be put into practice and scaled, then we do have the opportunity to, to grow and prosper in this space. And um, I do want this to be a very positive message. It isn't all the negative focus on it because we do have the opportunity to reclaim those resources, to maintain and, and continue to, to, to show their value um, in different ways through the creative approaches that we can all explore together. Can I sure. follow on that? Uh, I, I wanted to make sure that for, for people here and, and watching uh, online that the concept of embodied energy was discussed because it's, it's a part of this, this future and the opportunity piece. There's some surprising solutions that we have at the intersection of circular economy and climate change. Uh, 
this chair. If you look at this chair, what do you see? You probably see white leather and metal framing. Uh, I do too. <laughs> I also see energy and water, actually. You can have embedded, embodied water too. All of the energy that went into extracting the materials, or if this is real leather, to feeding the cow that uh, it came from. All of the energy to put it together. All of the energy to ship it and eventually get it right here on this stage. That is locked inside of this thing. And if I took this chair and we went wrestling style and I smashed it on the ground, broke it, we'd have to go get a new chair. And we'd have to extract the material, use the energy to make the new chair and get it to this spot and put it here. So if we keep things in use, their highest value as long as possible, perhaps one of the greatest solutions in the circular economy space, we preserve the energy, therefore the carbon where it is. We don't have to go and make that next thing and use more energy to do so. So this vision for the future, we become owners of things. This is Patagonia's words and Yvonne Chouinard's owners of things, not consumers of them. That's a big and radical shift in this, this full system and something that I know resonates with the folks at Cradle to Cradle. Absolutely. And there's so much pressure. The company pressure, though, you know, John Lanier, is quarterly growth and profits. Apple is in trouble because they're not selling enough iPhones. They want us to turn that iPhone in, and maybe they'll recycle it, and maybe you believe that. There's so much pressure to buy new things, so much overwhelming of individual virtue. Absolutely. It, it's the, the problem of short-term thinking. And we can't think that way. Like, we're, we're in big trouble if we continue to think that way. So how does it change? I think it changes, sure, you need shareholders to change the way that they think about return on investment. You also need consumers to change the way that they think about consuming or owning something. You need employees to demand more from the companies that they work for. We need so much leverage brought to bear on these fundamental flaws in our system, short-term thinking being one of the biggest of them, for those aspects of the system to move. And so it's really going to have to come from a lot of places. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We've been talking about how a circular economy could salvage the climate. But until we're living in a completely zero-waste world, what to do with the mountains of trash we do create? It started out mostly uh, art sculpture, mm -hmm. metal sculpture. Mm -hmm. A few people were doing things like making clothing out of uh, materials that were thrown away. Uh, we've had some performance art. My next guest, Mike San Giacomo, is president and CEO of Recology. Here on the West Coast, Recology is responsible for turning leftovers into fertilizer, construction materials into ground cover, and discarded household items into performance art, like the piece we're listening to. Junkestra by Nathaniel Stuckey is an orchestral work performed entirely on percussion materials salvaged from the dump. For years, much of what we threw in our recycling bins ended up in China, but recently, China announced that when it comes to our garbage, they're no longer in the market. China changed everything for us in a very short period of time. Uh, they made it very easy for us to be recyclers. People like us who collect material in, in blue bins uh, sent most of it off to other, other people to process. And China was buying everything we had. When they cut us off, uh, uh, we've had to scramble. Uh, we still have really good markets for cardboard, for 
almost any other type of paper. We have to make sure they're really clean. We have to make sure we've removed contaminants from them. Uh, bottles, cans, all those materials are all easily still sold to people who reprocess them. Uh, the difficulty, real difficulty has come in the three through seven plastics. Again, that used to go to China. We believe they sorted and reprocessed them all. Um, other countries that are taking those materials now probably are not. We are looking for and are finding some uh, outlets for those materials. They have to be they have to be further sorted. Uh, we can no longer just lump three through sevens uh, and send that to one entity for for further processing. They they need to be separated. So it's adding cost. Uh, it's it's much more difficult to to find. Um, we know where our material is going, but I'm not sure where everybody else's is. Sure. And I've read some things that suggest this might be an opportunity for the U.S. to develop rather than rely on export markets to do this kind of work in the United States, you know, onshoring, reshoring. Uh, what are the prospects for handling that plastic ourselves in this country and then making them into, you know, the cradle-cradle pr principle would be making them into a product of higher value, not lesser value? We we think that is the right approach and probably should have been the approach all along. But again, it was, it was too easy to go to go to China. Now now that we can't, uh, we really believe that this country needs to accept that uh, we need to do something with these materials we produce. Finding those companies that will buy and use those materials is is you know, the, the, there are more and more of them coming along. Uh, we've actually challenged the plastics industry to rather than just claim their material is recyclable, to develop uses for these products, finding us ways to recycle them so that they, they really can be put into use. California is actually looking at uh, a variety of, uh, of potential laws that would make it easier for companies who could use those products to open up in California and, and create facilities that would use locally recycled material in locally remanufactured products. Zero waste is talked about a lot. Is anyone achieving zero waste? You know, is that really an achievable goal or just kind of a, a aspirational goal? It, it's hard. It keeps getting harder as as the rules change, as uh, as some places stop buying what they used to. It, it's achievable, but it's going to take a lot of effort. Uh, we've been putting a, a lot of effort in trying to find uh, people to, to take all the materials that we collect. We there are things that some of the film plastics, things like candy wrappers that we need manufacturers to make them in ways that they can be easily reused. Uh, some products with multiple materials in them need to be, there need to be ways to easily deconstruct those. Uh, you know, maybe some of those shouldn't even be allowed to be made. Uh, I remember depending years on, ago, uh, on their, their overall impacts on the environment. Years ago, I interviewed uh, Dave Steiner, who was then head of waste management. He said the Barbie doll was a nightmare. All the different materials in the Barbie doll and trying to like separate them and get, you know, there's a lot of materials in there, but there's many different materials and they're all very, very tightly bound. Uh, uh, you know, iconic American products. So you would say to to product manufacturers, think about the end of life. We, we actually do. We we bring many manufacturers through our facility here in San Francisco every year to show them what happens to products that they they make that uh, they're not good recycling markets or that are not easily recyclable. Do they change uh, their design? Some have. Uh, I think most of them not yet. But I think as the, the American public becomes more and more concerned about 
what is happening with these materials. Uh, sadly, too many of them end up floating around in the oceans and, and all, the, all the issues that brings. Public opinion, public pressure is going to change. Kind of like what happened kind of with the cigarette industry. Uh, finally, people wised up and said, you're, you're doing bad stuff to us. We don't like it. The public stopped, stopped buying and accepting. But right. something like that will happen with the plastics industry. Get their attention and get them to make products that either are more easily recyclable or where they help us figure out how to reverse engineer those things so they can be made used again to make another generation of products. And a lot of focus on straws these days. It's something that's easily, uh, you know, tangible. Everyone can relate to a straw. There's many of them <laughs> in, in, a, in a day, perhaps, for some people. Others say that that's just a trivial distraction. And the, mount, the overall big picture, straws are just, you know, this obsession with straws is ridiculous because, you know, it's not a big part of the problem. As someone who hauls away a lot of this stuff, what do you say about the straw phenomenon? Well, there's nothing worse than seeing a picture of a, of a turtle with a straw stuck in its nose and that's mm. probably threatening its life because uh, it can't get it out. That attracts public interest, public attention. And, and those are the kinds of things that are go- the kind of actions, concerns that are going to get an industry to ch- hopefully change some of their practices. Fish eating the stuff. Uh, yeah. uh, it, There's a whale. I it, saw a video of a whale that died full of 20 pounds of plastic. In absolutely. Th- those, 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 things, uh, those things get public attention and, and, and start public outcry that hey, we need to do something different. But when you... When you see that there probably isn't a beach in the world that doesn't have little flecks of plastic in it, that, that's, that's an issue. Uh, big part of the waste going into uh, landfills and a big part of the carbon problem is, is food waste. And in the waste industry, they're called organics, which is confusing for people who think of organic apples. But tell us about what's being done about food waste, because that's a top 10 issue in terms of reducing carbon emissions. We, we started taking uh, food waste and composting it back in 1996. Uh, this was a fr- San Francisco was the first uh, major city that had that offered Compulsory. composting yeah. services to every business and every resident in the city. So we, we, we have been taking that material for, well, over 20 years now. We blend it with uh, green waste, yard waste, and uh, make a product that has a really high nutritional value for soils, uh, frankly, better than, better for the soil than chemical fertilizers, which do things like uh, harden up waters and, and nitrify soils. Uh, uh, so yeah, we, we sell it, uh, we get paid for taking it away, which subsidizes the cost of manufacturing the product. We still don't have enough um, buy-in on the product that people are willing demand. to pay. Demand is not there. The, the demand's there, but they haven't bought in that that it's, it's a, a more valuable product than the chemical fertilizers that you used to buy. Well, so so we, we, that mindset is slowly changing, but San, San Franciscans actually uh, put more material in compost bins today than they do in the recycling bin. We're taking about 800 tons a day of, uh, of organic material out, composting it, putting it back on the soil as, as nutrients every, every day. So that started in San Francisco. I remember, you know, Gavin Newsom started that when he was mayor, and there was jokes about him going to go around and inspect people's compost bin to see if they were composting. Um, so it was policy-driven. Why isn't there more composting around the United States? Well, what, what we have here is a really close partnership between the city of San Francisco and its waste hauler, Recology, who 
employee-owned, believes in doing the right things for the environment, who is that willing partner that will figure out what to, what to do with those products. You know, we actually do this in many other communities on the West Coast. We have eight compost facilities in California and Oregon now. It's, it's spreading. Um, California has enacted a law that uh, by, I think it's 2023 20, or so, requires uh, most organic material from commercial establishments to be recovered, not put into landfills. Mm -hmm. Today, the, the most economical way to do that is, is composting. But there, we're, we're, we are looking, other parties have been uh, playing with the idea of digesting those materials so that you can recover gases from them that can be used for energy purposes. Uh, mm -hmm. And the residual, what they call the digestate, uh, then used as, as compostable material. More and more that's happening, but it, it has started, it started here in California. It's spreading Little by little, it'll find its way in other parts. Does of the it There's some going on in, in New England now as, oh. as well. Does it cost more for people for curbside pickup? Does the city have to uh, invest in different kinds of trucks? You know, is there a capital cost is it to, uh, to cities and to consumers here to, to get into composting? Yes. You need a separate bin for the material. Uh, it's got to be collected separately. So you're either running more trucks, uh, Hopefully, you're running them on clean burning fuels, so that's mm -hmm. not creating an impact. Uh, there's an investment in a facility uh, to do it. But if you think about the long-term impacts of it, in my mind, it's, it's, it's cheap. Um, putting organic material into a landfill is the worst thing you can do for creating greenhouse gases. In a landfill, those materials break down, mix with other things that aren't biodegradable. Methane. And, mm -hmm. and you get the release of methane, which is much worse than carbon dioxide and warming up warming up the atmosphere. So that that's, a, to me, a, a really good reason for doing it, even if it does cost a little bit more now. I think the longer-term impacts are, are valuable. Right, especially if there's a price on carbon pollution or cities are paying attention to that. Another really wasteful industry is construction waste. So much material is brought to construction sites and then a lot of it's hauled away. Mm -hmm. There's some, you know, factory-made prefab buildings these days. Still a little bit of a stigma for those. Um, what's being done on, on construction waste, which are one of some of the most wasteful areas of our economy? There are people taking that material and trying to uh, find reuses for it. Uh, again, here in San Francisco, some of the other communities we operate in, uh, we, we take that material, uh, separate it. We've, we find uses for wood, uh, for gypsum, for metals, for cardboard, mm -hmm. for heavy, heavier plastics, um, and a few other things that end up in construction waste. Um, we probably recover 50 or 60 percent of that material. No, that. Um, we grind up wood. Uh, we, we take that material, grind it up, and uh, add some non-VOC emitting uh, colorings to them and use it as ground cover. Uh, hmm. It looks nice, but it also retains moisture in the soil. We take gypsum, and uh, uh, it's a great soil amendment. Uh, certain types of uh, land need, need. If, if you're going to grow a crop, you, you need to understand the makeup of your soil, the pH of it, and mm -hmm. and what else is in it, what nutrients it is in it, what it needs. Soil scientists will determine that, and we'll we'll put additives in the compost material so that they don't have to make one application. And and in some some instances, uh, gypsum from old sheetrock is a a valuable uh, soil. You have an artist in residence program, and I remember a display one time in San Francisco International Airport where there was a 
big Jeep made out of styrofoam. Mm -hmm. uh, pretty cool stuff. So tell me about the artist in residence program where they, what they do. Boy, we started that almost 30 years ago. Hmm. Uh, the idea was there is so much material being thrown away that ought to have an, another use that giving artists a chance to see what's come, what's being thrown away, find, find things they can, they can make art from, uh, and doing that to educate people that there are other things you can do than just throw this in a garbage can or throw it on the street and not worry about it anymore. Uh, so we, we have had almost 200 professional artists over the last 29 years uh, uh, working at our facility. They scavenge in our public, uh, public resource recycling area. Mm -hmm. uh, they come in with an idea of what they want to do, and then they, they just start seeing things. And uh, mm -hmm. often they go off a little bit on a tangent because they're just blown away by how much material and the, the wide variety of things that, uh, that they can do. So in 30 years, we've had, it started out mostly uh, art sculpture, mm -hmm. a metal sculpture. Mm -hmm. A few people were doing things like making clothing out of uh, materials that were thrown away. Uh, we've had some performance art, including... Uh, a fellow named Nathaniel Stuckey developed, wrote a 14-minute uh, classical piece called Junkestra, where he found things in the public recycling area, found their natural note without modifying them in any way. Pipes were left the length they were, pieces of wood, anything else, left the way they were, and he found their notes and created this piece that uh, was has been performed at Originally here in San Francisco, it's been performing around the world, including at the Kennedy Center in D.C. Uh, 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 YouTube, Junkestra, 14 minutes of, uh, of fun listening. We, we had an opening just this last, uh, an art opening at the end of, uh, of a couple of artists' residencies just this last weekend. And both these artists, you know, we came here thinking we were going to do something, and then we start seeing all this stuff. We get these ideas, and the employees tell us, well, just if, if there's something you want, just let us know. It, it will come. <laughs> and the answer is, for, in both of their cases, they said, within two days, the things they were asking for came. Uh, that's just the way it is at the dump. You've been listening to Climate One. We've been talking about innovative approaches to recycling with Mike Sanyakamo, president and CEO of Recology. My other guests today were Beth Ratner, executive director of the Biomimicry Institute. Peter Templeton, President and CEO of Cradle to Cradle, and John Lanier, co-author of Mid-Course Correction Revisited, the story and legacy of a radical industrialist and his quest for authentic change. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at climateone.org. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a review on your favorite podcast app. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the program. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs>